Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast, going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, and I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 92nd episode of the Nauticast, titled "Bathing in Fire," an analysis of the Clash Kings Tyrion Five, in which the street preachers ranting about the apocalypse overtaking King's Landing don't even know how right they are. This is one of those chapters that definitely reads completely differently, coming back after the conclusion of HBO's niche property, Game of Thrones. But it also is just such a, a dense and endlessly rewarding chapter on its own merits. I didn't even realize how much so until I came back to read it, but what a what a fun reread this is and what an episode I've been looking forward to as we've been creating it in the doc. You're right about that. You know, we were talking the pre-episode about all of these shades and flashbacks we had to doing the prologue and the Davos one chapter. We had to split up into two episodes for those. We're not doing two episodes. Don't worry. We're not doing two episodes for, for Tyrion 5. But this is a dense fucking document. It's 25 pages on Google Documents, about 12,000 words. And yeah, it's really a lot of fun to kind of go in and do this chapter now, especially coming back after season eight of Throne Show. So it's going to be a lot of fun to do it. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zack. Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, the High Breeder Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B, Sir Jasper the Cruel of the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Word of the Mist, Word of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Brian, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sorcedelica, and our Two newest members of the small council. You heard that right. Two newest members of the small council. Both of them promoted from the High Lord's Patreon tier. Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, proud soy boy of Summerhall, defender of the fifth book and swing dancer of dragons. And Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie of the Blackwood King's Guard. Elsie of the Blackwood Guard and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms. Thank you for our, thank you to our counselors and welcome to our brand new counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And welcome to Prince Matthew and Sir K.W. So happy to have you. Absolutely. And our spoilering, as we say in all episodes, will potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three decade novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Guilty Undertaker, a sworn sword patron, asks a question near and dear to my heart this week. You've mentioned your theory that Euron was Blood Raven's protege. Might he have been Quellon's as well? Euron was the most intelligent of his generation of Greyjoys by a fair margin. Just true, but you know. Not exactly a high bar. <laughs> and unlike his brothers, he seems to realize that the old way is shallow and foolish, a view he shared with his father. However, while Quellon's view was, why read when you can trade? Euron's is, why read when you can conquer? Uh, that's a, a terrific question, something I've, I've thought about before that, you know, one, one theme you see in a lot of uh, villains or villain-adjacent characters in A Song of Ice and Fire is the, the classic daddy chip on their shoulder. Where so much of what they're doing is trying to fill the hole that their father left behind or prove that they're a different man from their father or both of those at once. You see that with, with Tywin, and he's passed that on to Tyrion. You see that with Ramsay, of course. You see it with Littlefinger, not specifically about his father, but about the the class his father was and his father striving and, and trying to get in good with Hoster Tully and how that rebounded with Littlefinger. It's, it's a motivation that drives a lot of these characters. And 
Euron seems to be one of the main characters who lacks that completely. Like, he doesn't have a chip on his shoulder, and that does suggest someone who might have been his dad's favorite, actually. Because, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons you have a spare, so to speak, the air in the spare formulation, is in case your air turns out to be unacceptable for one of a variety of reasons. And in Balin's case, he was going politically 180 degrees away from Quellon's reform, so I could definitely see a scenario in which Quellon turned to Euron as a potential follow-up, especially since... Euron is interested in cultures outside the Ironborn. The problem, as, as Guilty Undertaker says in the question, is that Euron is interested in other cultures in the sense that he's fine with using them as unholy fodder for his, his pyramid pilgrimage to Valhalla, the same way he is with the Ironborn. It's not like, you know, I want to go abroad and learn traditions and bring them home to better my people and better our ways. It's more like <laughs> I want to go abroad to, you know, take insane drugs and learn how to kill people in different cool ways. So that I could see him being alluring to Quillon in relation to Balin, but ultimately not an acceptable choice, especially since he, he creeps everybody out. All of that is just kind of, you could read that in, it's very implied, like a lot of Euron's backstory, but I think it makes sense if you consider Euron politically and how he emerges in A Feast for Crows as someone who has a lot of reasons not to garner support, as a lot of people who don't like him, but also doesn't seem to have really been made an outcast in his youth in the way that you might expect for someone so creepy and weird. So maybe he had dad's support and that's why is what I'm saying. Yes, indeed. But hey, this is the Christmas season. I can say that now, now that the Obama Christmas ban has been relinquished recently. So we could talk about it's not just the holiday season, it's the Christmas season. And we come bearing good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Our episode with Sir Joe Buckley will be available a week early for our patrons, as you guys know, but it will also be available for everyone on Christmas Eve on our public podcast feed. We love all of our patrons. We love all of our listeners, too. This is our special holiday gift for you guys. And we just want to say thank you all so much for another wonderful year of listening to us and our interactions with you guys in the fandom. And we look forward to many, many years to come. we got lots and lots of material left to cover. And if you like what you hear in the episode, of course, you're, you know, consider supporting us on Patreon, where you, we release monthly bonuses, Song of Ice and Fire, and Fever Dream episodes for all of our four fellow and above patrons at, again, at patreon.com forward slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon and happy tidings. Let's get on to Tyrion Lannister. At last look, Tyrion had just Kanye'd his small counselors and heard news of Renly marching on King's Landing. He might want to start seeing to the defenses of King's Landing and find out which traitor on the small council was stupid enough to fucking out himself. So let's delve into that in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 5. Tyrion is glad he listened to the Pyromancer's warning to dress appropriately as he huddles into his heavy wool clothing in the cold basement of the Guild Hall of the Alchemist. Timmit, his guard, had chosen not to dress so warmly and had thus beaten feet and run for the warmth upstairs rather than face the chill of the basement. Tyrion thinks they're under Rainey's Hill, and he notices that the stone walls are wet with spots of potassium nitrate on them, and the only light was the one carried very carefully by Wisdom Helene the Pyromancer, and he was being, again, very super-duper careful with the lamp. Tyrion grabs one of the jars, noting that it's shaped to look like a fat clay grapefruit. The clay was thin, fragile, and Tyrion takes measures not to squeeze it or let his fingers get slippery, but he feels how the pot is rough. Helene states that the, this, this was intentional to prevent the jars from slipping and crashing onto the floor and killing fucking everyone. My God! The bobfire oozed slowly to the lip of the jar when Tyrion tilted it to peer inside. The color would be a murky green, he knew, but the poor light made that impossible to confirm. 
thick, he observed. <laughs> Thank you for saying so, Lane says. Yeah, it's thick with three C's. Probably making a quick peek dickward before grinning and getting some sweaty palms. Oh, oh, you, you meant, oh, the wildfire. Ah, well, that's thick because it's cold down here. Helene then gets described by Tyrion as looking like a corpse with wet hands in an obsequious manner. And of course, Helene is, very, is wearing very non-ominous flame and black-colored robes. But let's get back to the wildfire, shall we? As it warms, the substance will flow more easily, like lamp oil. Substance was the pyromancer's own term for wildfire. They called each other wisdom as well, which Tyrion found almost as annoying as their custom of hinting at the vast secret stores of knowledge that they wanted him to think they possessed. A while back, the pyromancers were the guild kings, so to speak. Everyone wanted a piece of them, but the citadel and the maesters overtook them. There were only a few pyromancers remaining, and they didn't even claim to the power of alchemy anymore. Tyrion states that wildfire can't be put out by water, and Helene agrees. Wildfire burns through cloth, wood, leather, steel... Everything burns when wildfire touches it. This causes Tyrion to remember Thoris and Beer and how he used to coat his sword with wildfire during tourney melees. Robert would then give him a new sword to replace the ruined husk of his former sword. But back to the present, Helene asks if Tyrion wants to go down south. Raising? No, not that. No, no, not that, that. Not that way. Down into the basement where the older pots of wildfire were stored. Those pots of wildfire were straight fire, older, and more dangerous. Created in the days of Ares II Targaryen, these pots of wildfire were stored way, way down in the lowest vaults with water in them. But there was something odd about those pots. They should have been destroyed, but they weren't. There weren't, you see, there weren't enough pyromancer acolytes, according to Helene, and more of those older pots keep turning up all around King's Landing. And much of the stock we made for Ares was lost. Only last year, 200 jars were discovered in a storeroom beneath the great Sept of Baelor. No one could recall how they came there. But I'm sure I do not need to tell you that the High Septon was beside himself with terror. Helene and the rest of the Pyromancers had helpfully moved the jars from out under the Great Sept by night, probably to prevent mass chaos from unfolding, which makes a lot of fucking sense. Literally, one, two, dropping one of these pots would kill hundreds of thousands, possibly, of people. My God! Tyrion puts the jar back and asks whether the jars from King Ares' day can still be used, and their current count of jars, by the way, what's the count? This morning, the Wisdom Munster told me that we had 7,840 jars. That includes 4,000 jars from King Ares' day, to be sure. You guys like my voice for that? I love it. Helene says they'll have the 10,000 that Cersei requested, but only if they have enough time. The recipe itself was a secret, but Tyrion knew that it was a mixture that took a long time to create. And though he had been skeptical of 10,000 jars, maybe they weren't lying. He doesn't know if they should. He doesn't know if he should freak out or be happy about this prospect. Maybe both at the same time? Question mark. Yes, yes, absolutely. Tyrion warns Helene not to get too hasty with production so as to prevent defective wildfire or, again, accidentally explode the bejesus out of King's Landing. My God! But Helene's got it covered. The wildfire is prepared in bare stones and bare stone cells by acolytes. Apprentices then carry the jars to rooms filled with sand and a quote protective spell on the floor that would then cause the floor to fall away with the sand smothering the blades. Smother, smothering the blades, rather. By spell, Tyrion imagined Helene meant clever trick. All the same, Helene says not to worry one bit. Everyone in the guild respects the hell out of wildfire. But he's concerned about giving the substance to common soldiers. One mistake could spell catastrophe. Yeah, it's a fucking miracle that catastrophe hasn't already been spelled. My God. Helene's father had warned Aris II about said catastrophe, and his grandpa had said as much as Jaehaerys II. They must have listened, Tyrion said. If they had burned down the city, someone would have told me. So your counsel is that we had best be careful. Be very careful, said Helene. Be very, very careful. Tyrion asks if he has a lot of jars, and Helene says, yeah, they sure do. So Tyrion wants to take a, you know, just a few thousand of them. Not the ones that are filled with wildfire, mind you. Just the empty pots. Those pots are to go to each of the, get, each of the gate captains. When Helene asks why, Tyrion cuts him off, saying, you know, 
Don't ask. But for now, he's seen enough. He wants to get warm. So Elaine leads Tyrion up the stairs by lamplight. He thanks Tyrion for coming, saying that he that the last Hand of the King who came was Rosser, who was a pyromancer before Aerys promoted him to the Hand of the King. Aerys, you see, loved the shit out of Wildfire. I mean, he promoted a fucking guild member to the second highest office in the land. Oh, man. But according to Helene, Aerys took interest, additional interest in the substance. King Aerys used to roast the flesh off his enemies, Tyrion thought. His brother Jamie had told him a few stories of the Mad King and his pet pyromancers. Helene wonders if Joffrey would like to come, you know, maybe visit, maybe feast with the pyromancers too. But Tyrion says that Joffrey forbade feasting until the war was won. And of course, Tyrion's insistence. Well, maybe the pyromancers could come visit Joffrey then to demonstrate their powers. Um, maybe. Tyrion will ask Cersei, but internally Tyrion thinks it would may not be the best idea to put a fucking psychopath in the presence of wildfire that could kill everyone, my god. God knows what Joffrey would do with that shit. Up the stairs, Tyrion meets back up with Timmit, and they move through the complex maze out into the city proper. Outside, Tyrion encounters the rest of the Burn Men, his escorts for the day, and thinks it's quite fine that he has a bunch of scarred, scary barbarians for guards, given how tense everything has been going in the city. Not three nights past, another mob had gathered at the gates of the Red Keep, chanting for food. Joff had unleashed a storm of arrows against them, slaying four, then shouted down that they had his lead to eat their dead. But he has still more friends, Tyrion thought. Surprisingly, Bronn is there waiting for Tyrion down his litter, and he's there to be Tyrion's mailman. Jaslyn Bywater, a.k.a. Ironhand, needs Tyrion to come to the Gate of the Gods for a reason, well, he wasn't going to exactly share with Bronn. Also, Cersei has summoned Tyrion to the Red Keep. Sir Lancel delivered the message for Bronn. Tyrion judges that the more important message is from Sir Jaslyn, and he also judges keeping Cersei waiting will make her impatient, stupid, and mad online. So, he opts to visit Bywater first. At the Gate of the Gods, Sir Jaslyn greets him and reports that Sir Cleos Frey has arrived from Riverrun with a letter from Robb Stark offering peace terms. Tyrion immediately asks to see Cleos' cousin, and they take him out to the windowless room. Cleos immediately jumps up, proclaiming that he's very, very happy to see Tyrion, but, um, where, where's Cersei? Busy, Tyrion says, but let's see that little letter, shall we? Tyrion glances over the letter and notices that Cleos is looking a bit frail. Actually, he looks fucking haggard. Sir Cleos lowered himself onto a bench. It's bad in the Riverlands, Tyrion. Around the God's Eye, along the King's Road especially. The river lords are burning their own crops to try and starve us. And your father's foragers, foragers, that's a term, are torching every village they take and putting the small folk to the sword. Well, that was the way with war, Tyrion thought. The small folk were slaughtered while the highborn were held for ransom. Remind me to thank the gods that I was born a Lannister, Tyrion thought. Man, Tyrion, I was almost starting to like you. Almost. Cleos reports that his diplomatic party was attacked twice by whom he couldn't say. They might have been former bannermen to House Stark, Tellier Lannister, but now, now they're broken men. Tyrion asks about the Starks as he reads the letter and examines the map, noting that Rob was only asking for half the kingdom and what he perceives to be a Lannister, a Lannister capitulation in the war. Cleo says that Rob's hiding in Riverrun, so fucking scared of Master Strategist Tywin Lannister, of course, who, by the way, don't say this too loudly, got totally fucking strategically pantsed by Rob Stark just a little while ago. The Stark tally strength is growing less, and the Riverlords are off to defend their own lands. Tyrion wonders if this is what Master War Promote Tywin Lannister wanted. But he rolls up the Stark map and says that this proposal won't do. He won't even trade Tion Frey and Willem Lannister, Tion being Cleos's younger brother, of course, for Sansa and Arya. But Tyrion will send his own proposal back with Cleos to Riverrun. Clearly, the prospect did not cheer Cleos. My lord, I do not believe Rob Stark will yield easily. It is Lady Catelyn who wants this peace, not the boy. Lady Catelyn wants her daughters, Tyrion replies. Tyrion asks Cleos that. Tyrion tells Cleos that Jaslyn will attend him until he's ready to dispatch him back from Ruron. He heads out of the door and observes Ironhand taking a gander at his new recruits. There had been a lot of recruits given that the Goldcloaks were receiving the best in food and clothing and provisions. 
but Tyrion knows these goobers won't fare well in an actual battle. In an actual battle, Tyrion instructs Jaslyn to take care of Cleos, but don't allow the Northmen entry into the city. Tyrion doesn't want them to know how bad it is inside of King's Landing. Finally, Tyrion tells Jaslyn, to Iron Hand's consternation, by the way, that he will be hand receiving some pots, some pots of uh, the alchemist, some pots of wildfire from the alchemist guild. No, no, not actually wildfire. They're supposed to be filled with paint first, and then lamp oil. Then the lamp oil is supposed to be lit. Then real wildfire. They're basically supposed to be practicing and training on this new substance. Tyrion then heads out in his litter, thinking about how Cersei won't be happy about Tyrion intercepting Rob's letter, but he wasn't here to make Cersei happy. All the same, Tyrion has a plan for Rob Stark. Let the boy wait at River Run, dreaming of an easy peace. Tyrion would reply with terms of his own, giving the King of the North just enough of what he wanted to keep him hopeful. Oh, I'll be fucked. Is Tyrion thinking cynically here? Cynically, Tyrion. No, not Tyrion. Yeah, absolutely. Tyrion imagines that it will be a really hilarious prank on the Starks to have Cleos riding back and forth between King's Landing and River Run with pretend offers of peace from the Lannisters while Stafford Lannister gets his army ready in the West while Tywin waits at Harrenhal. And then again, just a prank, bro, Tywin and Stafford would make for a Rob Stark sandwich at River Run. The Lancer brothers-in-law would be the bread, Rob the meat, and this worst of all possible analogies. So that was the Starks. That was the easy street. <laughs> okay, Tyrion, we'll see about that. The real threat in Tyrion's mind continued to be the Baratheon brothers. Renly was moving up slowly from Highgarden with a massive army, but it continues, interestingly, to be Stannis that remains the real threat for Tyrion Tyrion's mind. If Stannis sailed from Dragonstone, they'd be in deep fucking shit. And maybe they'd have Wildfire Ray to repel Stannis, but that's a big F. Tyrion's just in the middle of this thought when he notices a commotion. Turns out it's a prophet, dressed in his monastic best, and boy does he have some things to say. Corruption, the man cried shrilly. There is the warning. Behold the father's scourge. He pointed the fuzzy red wound in the sky. Prophet goes on to denounce the Lancer incest, the psychotic king, the lie that Littlefinger put out about Selyse and Patchfies, the gluttony of the fat high septon, Robert and his whoremongering, and yes, the prophet thinks that the, quote, twisted little demon monkey is a giant piece of shit. Twisted demon little monkey. Who's that? Oh, it's Tyrion. Yes, our protagonist for A Clash of Kings. Hard to believe so far in this chapter, isn't it? The prophet demands that all repent lest they be cleansed. Bathe in the wine of righteousness or you shall be bathed in Fire! Fire! No foreshadowing there whatsoever, we're moving on. Some of the crowd repeat, fire, fire, but others hoot derision at the prophet. Tyrion thinks that it's funny for the moment that he's being called a demon little monkey man, and he agrees that the high septon is obese. But he moves on, and as he moves, he thinks that things are about to go right. He only needed more time, just a little more time, and for his chain to be completed. He climbs up to the tower of the head and runs headlong into a metaphorical buzzsaw. Cersei turned away from the window, her, her skirt swirling around her slender lips. How dare you ignore my summons? How dare you ignore my summons? Ah, uh, long last week to Emmett's favorite part of the Clash of Kings. Tyrion and Cersei converse in big, big quotation marks. Tyrion's annoyed that Cersei is here and demands to know how she got up to his tower. Well, it's not his tower to Cersei. It's Joffrey's. Tyrion, very annoyed now, says, says that he was on his way to Cersei, but she doubts him. So he goes and fills a wine cup. He asks what could he, what could he have possibly have done to incur such wrath from Cersei. And, you know, remember Tyrion 4, it turns out that she's real super angry about Tyrion sending Marcella away. Marcella, Tyrion thought. Well, that egg is hatched. Let's see what color the chick is. Let's see what color the chick is. Tyrion responds that Marcella is a princess and that she was going to be buried off regardless. That is, unless Cersei planned to marry Marcella to Tommen. In the words of Sir Dennis Reynolds from the show It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, it's about the implication. Cersei slaps the wine out of Tyrion's hand, completely getting the implication, telling her brother that she's Joffrey's regent and Marcella will not be shipped off the door like she was to Robert. Tyrion shook wine off his fingers and sighed. <sighs> Why not? She'd be a deal safer in Dorne than she is here. 
but Cersei is unappeased. The Tornish fucking hate the Lancers, and for no good reason. I mean, the Lancers only murdered Dorne and Oberyn's sister, as well as their niece and nephew. No big deal. Get over it, Dorne. Come on. But Tyrion says the hatred is only a generation deep. The antipathy between Dorne and the Stormlands is deeper. Renly had taken the Dornish for granted, but sending Marcella to Dorne as an honored guest keeps the Dornish out of the war. Besides, if Cersei is really concerned for Marcella's safety, Dorne Martell will likely be nicer to her than Joffrey was to Sansa. Than Joffrey is to Sansa. And he'll be sending Sir Aerys Simple Himmler in Oakheart with her. And he's also promised Dorne certain things. Castles, justice for Lily Martell, little things that'll keep Dorne off their backs for joy, or, or joining up with Renly. Well, those aren't little things to Cersei. Cersei states that Tyrion promised too much. Worse, Tyrion had done it without Cersei's consent. And boy, you really have to wonder if the Lancers had said anything resembling a good relationship and a shred of mutual trust that they'd be able to work this out much easier and quicker. But no, Tyrion gets sarcastic and instead asks if Cersei planned to offer, and I'll quote Tyrion here, that hole between her legs. She slaps him hard, and I really don't blame her for that. Sweet sister, Tyrion said, I promise you, that was the last time you will ever strike me. Cersei, getting all evil queenie here, says that Tyrion can't threaten her. Nothing will keep Tyrion safe from Cersei. Mwah-ah-ah. Not even a letter from Tywin. Ned Stark had a piece of paper, too, and that did fuck all to save him. But Tyrion is a little more cunning than dead. He has the city watch, clansmen, sellswords, all loyal to him or his cash money. He thinks for a moment, but then he kind of changes course. But he's not as trusting as Ned Stark anyways, that he knows that he could be betrayed by any of them. So he says nothing. Instead, Tyrion pours a new cup of wine for himself and tells Cersei to get fucking real. How safe do you think Marcella will truly be in King's Landing if the city falls to Stannis and Renly? Like, seriously, Cersei. Renly and Stannis will mount Marcella's head besides yours. And Cersei began to cry. Tyrion Lannister could not have been more astonished if Aegon the Conqueror himself had burst in the womb, riding on a dragon and juggling lemon pies. Tyrion hadn't witnessed Cersei crying since they were kids. He goes to console her, but she spits at him not to touch her. It should not have hurt, yet it did. More than any slap. Tyrion demands that Tyrion not look at her, and Tyrion politely finally turns away. He promises that nothing will happen to Marcella, and Cersei calls him a liar, which, yeah, Cersei's got a bit of a broken clock right twice a day thing going on here, as we'll find out in A Feast for Crows. Regardless, Tyrion has said he would free Jaime, and that's gone nowhere. Cersei should have been born a man instead of Tyrion and Jaime. She wouldn't have allowed herself to be captured like Jaime. P.S. Where the fuck was Daddy Tywin, and what was he doing? Making war. From behind the walls of Riverrun, she said scornfully. Curious way of fighting. Looks suspiciously like hiding. Tyrion tells her to do a second look. He's not hiding. Tywin is waiting for Rob to make a move, and whatever way Rob moves, he'll strike and win, and <laughs> I cannot wait for this to not to come true. Cersei says that if Tywin was captured, Jaime wouldn't be sitting around waiting like Tyrion is, and Tyrion agrees, thinking that Jaime would be impatiently getting him and his men killed attacking Riverrun. But Cersei is still not satisfied. Tywin's out at Harrenhal, but they're vulnerable here in King's Landing with Brynley marching up the Rose Road. He could be here any day, but Tyrion already has that figured out. Well, Renly couldn't take the city in a day or two, and Tywin would come riding south to smash Renly's host against the walls of King's Landing if that were to occur. But what if Rob marches? Well, in that case, Tywin is well situated over Harrenhal to block any attempted link up between Roose Bolton and Rob's armies, and Rob would still need all of his men to take Harrenhal. Even then, with the amount of numbers that they have, it wasn't a likely thing to happen. Besides, there's that other Lancer army led by Stafford forming up in the Westerlands. Everything is going exactly to plan. Yeah, buddy, yeah, it is, and it's totally not. Cersei regarded him suspiciously. How could you know all this? Did Father tell you this intentions when he sent you here? No, I glanced at a map. Her look turned to disdain. You've conjured up every word of this in that grotesque head of yours, haven't you, imp? Tyrion tisked. Ah, sweet sister, I ask you if we weren't winning with the Starks of Sued for peace. 
Tyrion produces the letter that Cleo Spray brought to read, stating that Rob has sent unacceptable terms, but maybe she'd like to read the letter? Yes, yes, she absolutely would. So Tyrion hands her the letter, his face still hurting from the earlier slap, thinking that that slap was a small price to pay for sending Marcella to Dorne and for sending that friend for having that game at work out. He figures he's got that as good as one now, and he has something else too. A certain knowledge of an informer. Well, that was the problem he's putting. And that is The Clash of Kings Tyrion 5. Boy, it feels like we're covering a lot of ground in this chapter, but I mean, do you think George needs another Tyrion chapter between now and Blackwater? Apparently the answer is yes, he needs many more Tyrion chapters than The Clash of Kings before, before the Battle of Blackwater. Only eight or nine or so. And I'm in trouble then because I'm running out of superlatives for these Tyrion chapters. They really are just that good. This is George's best work in the series on political systems and how leaders navigate them. Outside, of course, of John and Danny in A Dance with Dragons, hashtag best book. <laughs> Tyrion 5, though, is especially difficult to summarize given how many distinct little scenes it contains, as we saw in your synopsis. Tyrion is going through the full gamut of tests of his skills. The thread running through them, as our title indicates, is fire. The wildfire of the alchemists, the common fires Cleos Frey reports raging in the Riverlands, the metaphorical fire in Cersei's eyes, the all-consuming god fire that the preacher talks about, and the sense you get throughout is of King's Landing as a powder keg almost ready to blow. It's it's like a clenched fist with smoke billowing out between the fingers, fueled by the Mad King's ripe fruits. Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned the many distinct scenes that work in this chapter, and you also mentioned Dance of Dragons. So perfect segue, and thank you again for the opportunity to put my writer's cap on and talk about how well George does actual, not metaphorical, character movement from location to location to develop the plot. As we talked about in the past, Feast, Dance, and some of the Sample Winds chapters get a fair amount of critique for being travelogue for all the travelogue chapters in there. Rand searching the Crownlands and Riverlands for Sansa, Tyrion floating down the Rhoyne, Ariane riding for Storms and Aegon in the Winds of Winter. Here in Tyrion 5, we have travelogue scenes, but they're in, they're not like actual chapters, they're in miniature. So George could have jumped between the four sync locations, Guildhall to Gate, Street Preacher Stage, the Tower of the Hand, and probably cut a quarter to a third of the words of the, of the number of words for the chapter. But instead, he allows readers to marinate in Tyrion's thoughts as he progresses for each as he progresses to each location. You know, and both it both flavors the setting in King's Landing, so it's, you know this it always feels like a real city. This chapter is Tyrion, you know, passing a market square and noticing the square is devoid of customers and the market stalls are empty of any goods and food to sell. But it also develops readers' appreciation and understanding of how Tyrion processes and analyzes events, how he thinks. As a small example, I love how Tyrion is moving on from the street preacher. He's going into like full analytical mode, piecing together how the small folk are reacting to the street preacher's words. And like he's like, oh, I just need just a little more time. I can have this all figured out. I, I could do this. I could do this. And of course, he runs into Cersei, which ends up fucking everything up. But ultimately, it's story development in the context of a, of a point of view. And I think it's really, really good. And it all starts with an extended scene at a brand new location we've never seen before in King's Landing. Yes, we open behind the Guild Hall of the Alchemists. It's a part of King's Landing unfamiliar to us, despite the amount of time we spent in King's Landing in the first book. And indeed, it's unfamiliar to most people in the city. The alchemists like to hide from the people of the city that they almost <laughs> blew up. Tyrion is descending beneath the Hill of Rhaenys, which is, of course, the hill topped by the Dragon Pit. And the alchemists fit in perfectly here as, as the kind of the, almost the children of the Dragon Pit. They're just another testament to grasping at the fiery star, overreaching and falling like Rhaenys before them. Like Winterfell and Dragonstone, King's Landing turns out to have fire at its heart. But unlike those places, it's not a natural fire. It's it's a man-made one that cannot be made to live in harmony with the elements around it. Like if you think about the the hot springs and the the, the fire under Winterfell, it's, it's it's always gives you the impression of home and comfort and security against the cold. Remember that that sort of mood and atmosphere in Catelyn's second chapter in the Game of Thrones. Dragonstone, the fire at the heart of it, is more ambiguous. It's given a horror tone with, like, Melisandre walks there and shows Stannis, you know, visions of things unbidden. 
but it's also connected to Dragonglass, potentially world-saving Dragonglass, as we see in the Storm of Swords. So it's both in an ambiguity that fits Stannis and Melisandre. But the fire we see here under King's Landing, this is a straight-up horror show. And you can see that so strongly when you come back on a reread, when you see how wildfire is presented in later books, when you learn more about the Mad King, when you see more of Game of Thrones. Throughout this scene, we're gradually made aware of the horrors contained within these cold, crypt-like walls and the hubris involved in playing with them. So far in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion has been gradually accumulating power by largely conventional means, if less earnestly and straightforwardly than his predecessor. This is the first real, unreal thing, the first world breaker, the first real high fantasy tool <laughs> that George slips into Tyrion's toolbox, and it's no accident that he's framing Tyrion as crossing a dangerous line in doing so, because of the great theme we get from Dala in A Storm of Swords, sorcery is a sword without a hilt, there is no safe way to wield it. And we generally associate that sentiment with characters like Danny or Bran, or Melisandre, but it absolutely applies here to Tyrion and the alchemist's quote-unquote substance. Yeah, it's interesting. So, uh, as I said on Twitter uh, this past weekend, my wife and I are starting our annual Christmas, because I can say Christmas still, Lord of the Rings watch, and I, and I can't help but see the parallels between The Song of Ice and Fire and Lord of the Rings. In, in this case, Wildfire, it reminds me of how Denethor views the one true ring, and he says his quote to, to Faramir, I believe it might be in the extended edition, which is, it should have been brought back to the Citadel to be kept safe, hidden dark and deep in the vaults, not to be used, unless at uttermost end of need. You know, Tyrion is kind of looking at himself as being above the common man, a rare intellect. He's so much smarter than Cersei and the peasants he has to save. And that's why only he should have the power to wield this sorcerous power of wildfire. But like the One Ring, magic superweapons can only corrupt and only bring destruction. And if you use the power one time, why not a second? Why not a third? You know, the parallel to Stannis' use of the Shadow Baby later in Clash of Kings is very, very strong, I feel like, in terms of wildfire. That's what we discussed towards the end of this episode. But that darker side of wildfire and what it means thematically clashes against the tone of the scene. I mean, it's, it's totally, like, we're, we're talking now, like, about the dire destruction of King's Landing, but this is this is a humor scene, I think, more than anything else. Like, the context of the apotheosis of, of King's Landing is done in the context of a major humor scene in this episode. That's true. Again, this is a tone that changes so much on reread, but on for a first-time reader, the actual tone of the scene is more comedic than dreadful. Like Pycelle, Halleen is this insufferably pretentious old man, thinking far too highly of his institution, his place within it, and his rightful place near the king. And as a more modern, with like, you know, five asterisks on modern <laughs> think, more modern thinker, and also a perpetual snark machine, Tyrion's job is to puncture that pretentiousness and the privacy of his thoughts as a POV. Even his, his appearance as, quote, a ball of striped fur adds a comedic touch to the proceedings. Like, the cold in, in the vault is a serious thing. It scares off Timmet, who's an intense dude, and it reminds us of the ice-fire interplay that defines the story, but George uses it as kind of a joke about, about Tyrion's cloak and how big it is. And Tyrion rolls his eyes at the alchemist's heavy-handed shorthand, how they refer to each other as wisdom, and the wildfire as the <laughs> substance. And this... This is in part to, you know, demystify them and make them less frightening than they would like to be. Because as Tyrion points out, that all this attitude is a front to paper over the fact that the alchemists are in fact on a long-standing decline, replaced by the maesters of the Citadel. Which makes sense, because the maesters are the sworn enemies of the supernatural. Just ask Marwyn the Mage, black sheep among the archmaesters. He has that great line at the end of A Feast for Crows. The world the Citadel is building has no place in it for sorcery, or prophecy, or glass candles, much less for dragons. And Tyrion, as we've seen in the past, is an intellectual bibliophile, skeptical of the magical age of wonder and terror, so he is inclined to think of the alchemists as pathetic frauds and charlatans. <laughs> he continu continually interrupts Helene, he, he doubts the promised payload of 10,000 jars, and he interprets quote-unquote spell as clever trick, 
because he doesn't believe in magic. My favorite example is how the alchemists have these wildfire torches by the entrance, these big, eerie, glowing wildfire torches. And as he's leaving, he comments to himself, oh yeah, they're going to extinguish those the second I walk out the door. And that perfectly captures the dynamic here. You have the eerie, mystical fantasy imagery, and then George just like drops Tyrion in the midst of that to point out that it's all just a shadow on a wall, and the bottom line still rules here like everywhere else. Right, there's there's a there's a really fascinating parallel, I think, in what you're saying in terms of another point of view and another character and another point of view's arc, namely Bran in the form of, uh, of, of Mr. Lewin. Because... Lewin was a guy who was skeptical of, of magic and the guy who is telling Bran, like, no, this is this is a natural, like, magic may have once existed in the world, but, you know, nowadays this just doesn't exist. We're all in a scientific, rational, reasonable understanding of, of how things are supposed to operate in this natural, realistic world. You know, Lewin, though, as I said before, was a true believer in magic as a child, which is similar to Tyrion as a true believer in dragons and the power of dragons, as, as he talks about in, in John's first chapter in A Game of Thrones. But through life experiences and education, Tyrion and Lewin's childlike wonder was extinguished, replaced by cynicism and higher learning, respectively. I, I favor Lewin's approach more than Tyrion's, obviously. But it's only to be reborn that sense of, that sense of wonder and that belief in magic through Bran's magical ability to Lewin, and by Tyrion's gradual exposure to dragons, and also through Tyrion's exposure to wildfire, which proves to be very much the uh, the sorcery that, that, the, that the pyromancers make it out to be. Absolutely, but before he can cross that line, he has to get around to the idea of using the tool in the first place. And as with Stannis, what happens is, is that Tyrion's cynicism leads him to conclude that even though he doesn't trust or respect the alchemists, even though he doesn't take their self-conception seriously, he needs every tool available to him to stay on top. So he takes some rational steps to make his new toy less dangerous. You know, he says he's going to train the men with empty pots and then pots with paint to get them ready for wildfire so they don't shake, they're not unready, and they don't cause a disaster inside the city, but... As I've said before, a lot of Tyrion's more sensible moves as hand come off as just like arranging deck chairs on the Titanic. They're just, they're so feeble in context. Like, how much should we praise him for a more effective, competent use of a substance that melts the flesh off bones like tallow? Maybe just don't. <laughs> maybe some tools can't be rationalized. As you're saying, maybe the conclusion we're supposed to reach here is that some power can't be fixed and can't be used for smart by smart people for good ends, no matter how much they tell themselves that. Maybe it just has to be gotten rid of for good and put beyond even the most well-meaning of hands. Right. I mean, like, Martin's talked a lot about how dragons are compared to nuclear weapons in A Song of Ice and Fire. I can make the same comparison between dragons and, or CP, between nuclear weapons and wildfire here. Maybe, you know, we're, we're supposed to look at this and be like, I, I just don't feel like maybe we should be using nuclear weapons. These Maybe we should get rid of them. Maybe we should also get rid of wildfire here. But I also think we also have the use of napalm maybe during the Vietnam War, which is another inspiration for George in A Song of Ice and Fire and how he contextualizes some of the historical events he's you know, not necessarily portraying, but is using to help illustrate some of the themes of Song of Ice and Fire. Do you use nukes to end the Second World War? Do you bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Do you use napalm to clear out enemy gorillas in a jungle but scorch the earth in the process and leave it, you know, unable to be tended or, or utilized in the years and decades to come? I mean, regardless of your individual personal ethical feelings about these issues, George wants us to at least question, I want to say, the moral efficacy of using super weapons to achieve your ends. Like, it, it doesn't fucking matter that Tyrion's like the smartest guy in the room, right? He's still using a super weapon that is going to <laughs> crush people and burn people alive, as we're going to see in Davos's third chapter. I mean, George wants us to see the cost associated with the usage of a super weapon. And that cost is a horrible, painful, fiery death of human beings, and maybe for many more people than simply combatants in the War of the Five Kings, as again, we'll talk about at the end of this episode. 
you know, intelligence is more dangerous if you don't have a solid ethical grounding in terms of the tools you're using. It means it means you might use them in a more effective and thus deadly way than someone like the Mad King. And even if you don't, if you if you keep these tools in circulation, if you empower them, you're just leaving them waiting around for someone that bad to show up again when the, the Targaryen coin flip lands on that side. And as the scene ends, Tyrion reminds us of the stakes, of what happens when less adroit managers get their hands on this stuff. You get the Mad King, because that's what the pyromancers are talking about the whole time. That's what they want to get back. This, this, it's so skin-crawling, their eagerness to get back into the inner circle in the mm. Red Keep. And you realize that they have learned nothing from Eris's day and how that turned out. They will burn anyone they have to if it means they can get royal patronage again. And Tyrion knows that Joffrey would be only too eager to help them. And that's a commentary not only on what an individual monster Joffrey is, but on the limits of what even relatively decent people, again, relatively, like Tyrion can do in this environment. No matter what incremental improvements Tyrion makes his hand, this is the bare fact. This is the scenario. This is a pack of remorseless pyromaniacs who just need one audience with the sadistic child king to get back into power like the bad old days. And look, as soon as Tyrion gets outside, he finds himself thinking about, oh, Joffrey just can't seem to stop killing and enraging civilians. Boys will be boys. <laughs> That's what it always comes back to, as we've said before. Tyrion's embrace of both burned men and wildfire speaks to his willingness to use fear and violence to keep Joffrey's butt on his stolen throne. So is being slightly better than the monsters really good enough? No. No, absolutely not. I mean, it goes back to what you were saying when we did Sansa's first chapter in Clash of Kings a few months ago. The good people, again, in big quotation marks, like you were saying before, people who serve in the evil regime end up legitimizing the bad behavior and the bad actors in that regime. Eris, simple Himmler, Okar didn't hit Sansa as hard as the other Kingsguard knights. Tyrion, well, he's not hes not a sadist necessarily. He isn't sadistically inflicting pain on the small folk, but he sure is getting ready to inflict pain all the same on the small folk in King's Landing and on the entire city. I, I think, you know... When I think about it, the conceit of Tyrion's arc and clash is that he appears to be the, quote, good guy, but that's only in contrast to the psychopaths at the very top of the of, of the pyramid. Tyrion's sardonic inner, mono, inner dialogue covers up the bruises Joffrey and Cersei are giving King's Landing, and Tyrion's incisive wit and modernistic outlook covers up the fact that he's hurting people in the city. Tyrion is normalizing, legitimizing the reign of Joffrey and King's Landing, but the target audience this time isn't the nobility of Westeros. We make a meta argument here. Martin is subversively targeting us, the readers, and our sympathies. So when we sympathize with a point of view who, by the way, is supporting an illegitimate regime while plotting to use a mass cachet producing superweapon to bolster an evil king and rule, is it our, as in the readers', in kind contribution to Joffrey's re election campaign? I'm just asking questions here, people. That's all I'm doing. I'm just asking questions. What I do. I agree. It's a great use of the POV structure, and, and you see it again when, when Tyrion receives Cleo's fray. Because here's where we get the follow-up to Rob's peace proposal in Catelyn 1. And the response on the Lannister side is, it's not great. <laughs> but what did you expect, given the, how, the, the worldview and the mindset Tyrion is bringing to everything else? Even before we get into the specifics, George lets us know this isn't going to go well, just from how Tyrion takes in Cleos's news about the Riverlands. Cleos, as Tyrion says... It looks like he's been through hell, and he has. He's shaken by just a passing glimpse of the nightmare in which we've been mired in recent Arya chapters. Not only are Tywin's goons deliberately sowing terror, but the river lords are burning crops in response with no concern for their people. Again, fires everywhere. You see why the Brotherhood ends up fighting all sides. Not only that, as you said in your synopsis, the first broken men are appearing to spread further chaos. And what is Tyrion's response to the news that the War of Five Kings has already spun out of control and shattered norms and destroyed resources and killed thousands? That's a shame. <laughs> That's unfortunate. As he said in Tyrion 4, 
I believe they call that war. He has no concern for the short-term effect on the people, nor even the long-term effect on Lannister power. Instead, he just dryly comments to himself that he's glad he was born a Lannister, and so was taken hostage rather than just killed outright. And coming right off of Lamy Greenhands' death at the hands of Lannister men, this detachment feels just so smug and callous and self-centered, and I gotta think the sequencing of chapters is deliberate that way. Tyrion keeps talking about just the way things are, the way war is, the way power is, as if he is not remaking them that way every day. As if he is not in power and making choices that affect others and could make different choices. A shadow on a wall is not a fixed thing, it's fluid and changeable like the flames that cast it. It's convenience, not calculation, that leads Tyrion to this conclusion. And we see in Tyrion's reaction to the proposal itself that while he may tell himself he's doing the best he can in a bad world, he's actually making that world actively worse. Now, no one in-universe or among the readers would expect Tyrion to actually accept Rob's offer as it stands. This is a negotiation, and a counterproposal is the next logical step. But again, Tyrion is a POV, and so George can show us that under the surface, the primary Lannister authority in the capital is operating in profoundly bad faith. It seemed to him that Rob Stark had given them a golden chance. Let the boy wait at River Run, dreaming of an easy peace. Tyrion would reply with terms of his own, giving the king in the north just enough of what he wanted to keep him hopeful. Let Sir Cleos wear out his bony fray rump riding to and fro with offers and counters. All the while, their cousin Sir Stafford would be training and arming the new host he'd raised at Casterly Rock. Once he was ready, he and Lord Tywin could smash the Tullys and Starks between them. And indeed, Tyrion will go on to use the counteroffer as a cover to break Jaime out, which both breaks custom in itself and signals that the Lannisters aren't interested in making an open-faced good-faith trade of hostages. And I, this, this is important not just to ding the Lannisters, although that's always fun. It's, it's, so, it's so key to an assessment of Robb Stark and the overall plotting of the War of Five Kings to understand that there was no way for him to make peace with the Lannisters because they were never interested at any point in making peace with him. We can and will debate how genuine the slavers in Essos were in making peace with Danny or whether Jaime's peace in the Riverlands is ultimately worth anything. But there's really no debate to be had here, given what we get from Tyrion and Tywin. It takes two to tango, and Tyrion ultimately looks at Rob the same way Tywin does, as an irritant to be stamped out decisively, so they can deal with the real problems, namely Robert's brothers. That's constantly the pivot, and we see Tyrion doing it here. It's like, I gotta get Rob out of the way so I can deal with Renly and Stannis. They're gonna show up any day now, and I am not ready for them. The Lannisters don't want a better deal out of Rob. They want him to stand still, please, until they once more have the strength to wipe him off the game board for good. As such, his only move is to move, reshape the map, force the Lannisters to respond to him instead of the other way around, keep his army together, threaten the Lannister homeland, and above all, remove Stafford's knife from his back. And this, of course, as we'll cover in later chapters, is the move he takes, because Rob Stark is actually pretty smart. Who knew? <laughs> he has to force the Lannisters to the table. It's the only way to get them there. And while I, I agree completely with the anti-war critique presented so vividly by Arya's chapters, I think some people read that and miss how complex peacemaking actually is. It's not just dropping your weapons and saying peace. It's laying out terms and establishing the trust it takes to make those terms work. And sometimes, as in this case with Rob, that means a continuation of war making in the short term to make even the negotiation a possibility. Amen, brother. I think that's excellently said. You know, cessation of hostilities isn't peace. It's just a ceasefire until the war can resume or peace can overtake it. And we're not beating our swords into plowshares here. That's not necessarily going to bring us the, the desired outcome here, which is, of course, the overthrow of those fucking Lancers who all deserve to be overthrown. You know, taking an objective view, though, like kind of like taking it outside of what the morality of it and outside of the political calculations that Tyrion and Rob are making and how smart Rob is 
in comparison to how he seems at some points, and especially seems in terms of how fans look at him. It, and not a lot really has changed since Tyrion's declaration that Robb Stark was winning the war back at the Lannister War Council, excuse me, the Lannister War Criminal Council back in the Game of Thrones Tyrion 9. You know, some of our lords are back home, but Robb and most of his hosts are still in the field. Stafford is forming up in the West, but his army is mostly untrained, untested small folk, and they're soon about to meet the business end of Robb Stark's all-cavalry force in the Westerlands. Let's take it even from an even more objective perspective, like not just looking at the, the strategy. Let's look at it from just sheer numbers. Like the Lannisters are likely at near parity with the Stark Tully host, with probably the Starks and Tullys having more men than they do. But factor in what Renly and Stannis have, they're really, really badly outnumbered. And of course, like you were saying, Tyrion has to posture back at Rob in complete bad faith, as you were saying, as if they're military co-equals. That's just politics. But you also have to factor in the human element as well when we're discussing what Tyrion is proposing to Rob Stark. There's just so many uh, layers of, of personal and politics going on here. And I think even though you can, again, lay out the 10,000-foot the view case for why war making makes sense for Rob... George is still unsparing in terms of the attitudes that persist behind that cold face of military and political logic. Like later on in Clash of Kings, Edmure's desperate desire to make his dad proud is what leads him to inadvertently sabotage Rob's big plan. And Tyrion makes such callous use of Cleos at cost of the man's brother, who will remain a hostage until unfortunately murdered by Rickard Karstark. Again, there is a logic and thought process to Tyrion's means. It's not like Eris, where he's just clearly lost contact with reality. But the terrible ends throw a harsh light on the worthiness of Tyrion's methods. And for me, the overall takeaway in terms of, you know, judging the Stark and Lannister leadership against each other on A Clash of Kings is that Rob is struggling to hold on to both his crown and his humanity. And while he definitely makes mistakes along the way, I think that struggle is admirable in a way that Tyrion's, like, shrug and surrender to crude Machiavellianism is not. I 100% agree. I think Rob is absolutely admirable and Tyrion is just really loathsome in this chapter and loathsome going forward. You know, and, and part of that loathsomeness is, is something in, in a very minor character, one that you probably don't even remember if you if we hadn't been reading this chapter along with us. And that's the character of poor, poor Sir Cleos Frey. You know, he, he gives two stories to Tyrion about what's going on in the Riverlands. And I love how, like, the story changes, interestingly. In this chapter, you know, he talking about Robb Stark and his, and his interaction with Tyrion. So this, the first story. The boy sits idle at River Run, Sir Cleo said. I think he fears to face your father in the field. His strength grows less each day. But then, when Tyrion says that no, he's not going to do the hostage trade that will result in his close family members being released, he changes his story. My, my lord, I do not believe Rob Stark will yield easily. It is Lady Catelyn who wants this peace, not the boy. So why does Cleos kind of change his story, or at least change his emphasis about Rob Stark? I mean, the easy answer, of course, is that Cleos is a Frey, and the Freys are all weak chin morons, and we all hate them. And yeah, but I think it's a little bit more than that. I think he's not acting like Tyrion's cousin because he is actually related by blood to Tyrion, or even acting as Walter Frey's son here. Instead, he's he's a supplicant attempting to negotiate with power. And in the first example of him saying how strong time it is and how they're all going to win, it's really trying to work on Tyrion Lannister's Tyrion's Lannister pride to get an advantage for what he wants, which is namely Tyrion to send Sansa and Arya to River Run in exchange for his younger brother Theon. Your family's just so strong, Tyrion. You 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 can give up Sansa and Arya. It's not going to really matter. You're going to win the war anyways. But after Tyrion says no, no, he's not going to trade the Stark girls for Tyrion alone. Cleos grows kind of desperate. His first answer was a lie because we saw this back in Catlip One. Rob Stark isn't afraid to face Tywin in battle. Rob tells Cleos that if Tywin didn't accept his offer of peace, that he would give Tywin a quote another whispering wood. So Cleos changes his tune and tells the truth on his second version of it. 
he says that basically, like, Rob Stark isn't afraid of Tywin, and but you really need to free my close kin or they're all going to fucking die. Please, Tyrion. Please. Trade the Stark girls for Tiana Willem. Please. You know, it's the echo of the please, please woman from the Arya's chapter earlier in A Clash of Kings there, kind of. And it's also kind of reminded me, too, of a later version of Arya's, uh, Arya's sixth chapter in A Clash of Kings, where you have all the people who attempt to do favors in, on behalf of Gregor's men in hopes of surviving, and they're all just killed anyways. I mean, Tyrion's because, you know, Tyrion's not going to trade the Stark girls for Willem and Tielan. He has the Game of Thrones to consider, after all. He's just going to need Cleos to ride back and forth between King's Landing and Riverrun with bad faith offers from the Lannisters so that Tywin can win and that Tyrion can win. And what's ultimately the result, though? I mean, when you have to, like, take take away the view of what Tyrion's attempting to do here, what is the result for Sir Cleos Frey? Tyrion's actions and Rob and Catelyn's actions, to be fair. How, how about just the Game of Thrones in totality? Ultimately cost Cleos Frey his life. It, it cost Tyrion and Willem's life, lives, too, when Rickard Stark murders them in a storm of swords, like you were saying. That's the end game here. That's Tyrion is, is damning this guy and his his kin to to death. He's damning his cousin to death, and that's really because of the Game of Thrones. And that's sad. It's, it's really sad. It's it's heartbreaking, and it really makes me not like Tyrion at all. When we're coming to this chapter, coming back to this chapter, and again, there's always a cold logic. Like, of course, he needs a messenger, and he's thinking of the the greater good of his house, and blah blah blah. But what he doesn't seem to appreciate, and what Tywin doesn't seem to appreciate. Is that it comes around that there's just there's a backlash to all these these indignities and atrocities added up and just kind of weighing down on the on the kingdom as a whole. And then, you know, just in case you managed to read this far into the chapter without getting that sense of a realm shaking itself to pieces and unholy fire oozing up through the cracks, George throws in an apocalyptic street preacher into this chapter just to drive that home. And as in the Guildhall of the Alchemist, Tyrion's POV as a, as a skeptic of such things focuses the preacher's monologue through a scornful and even satirical lens while also hinting at the deeper currents that give it power and legitimacy. Tyrion notes and draws reassurance from the people in the crowd who are mocking the doomsaying. But the fact that he needs reassurance that he's looking for it from the crowd, when normally Tyrion doesn't really care for or like the crowd, speaks to how he's spooked. I mean, he has to acknowledge that the, the preacher really managed to pick the right stage. He picked a perfect panorama that seems to make his points for him. And can anyone deny that sense of dreadful synchronicity between the comet and the red keep and the flames that are growing and spreading over Westeros? And it, it's interesting that, like, individually taken one by one, the, the critiques do hit home for Tyrion. He kind of has to acknowledge the truth behind some of them, especially, like, about the High Septon when Tyrion's like... Yep, you're not wrong. He is indeed a, a corrupt, debauched elite who has been completely alienated from his flock. And the reason Tyrion is comfortable admitting that to himself is that's the only part of the critique that fits his worldview, that fits his dislike of religion and the performance of power and the flattering and the niceties. He's, he's comfortable dismissing the High Septon, but the other part, that Joffrey is unworthy and that he, the twisted monkey demon, is implicated in everything Joffrey does... Tyrion is unwilling to fully go there because that gets at the heart of, again, how incremental and, and feeble a lot of his movements are. And, of course, he completely dismisses the overall <laughs> conclusion, the pattern that the preacher is saying exists, the frame he's putting around it, which are the, it's the, the, the eschatological implications. The idea that all these different fires are adding up to a judgment day closing in on King's Landing. That is something that Tyrion is very much burying his head in the sand about. You just get the, the impression from Tyrion from all the way back in the Game of Thrones where he visited the Wall through A Clash of Kings especially, that, you know, him dismissing the end times and how weird things are actually feeling is, is a mood. It's, it's a theme, essentially, for Tyrion's A Clash of Kings story. And we're going to see this in the next Tyrion chapter when Sir Alistair Thorne finally shows back up to tell the royal court that dead men are walking at the wall. 
Tyrion is going to utilize and zero in on mockery to gain a short-term political advantage. It's it's a character trait for Tyrion. You know, think about what Tyrion told Jon back in A Game of Thrones about mockery. You know, let them see that their words can cut you, and you'll never be free of mockery. If you want to give, if they want to give you a name, take it, make it your own. Then they can, then they can't hurt you with it. Tyrion here is following his advice, and he's called a twisted little demon monkey man by by the uh, by the preacher. Then he lets it kind of bounce off him. But later, he's going to quote make the name his own, but it's not going to be in the context of owning it as an identity. To grow from or base like some sort of popular uh, feeling from the people on. Instead, he's going to let the name get under his skin later on in Clash of Kings after the riot of King's Landing. The good folk don't have Jamie to protect them, nor Robert, nor Renly, nor Rhaegar, nor the precious Knight of the Flowers. Only me, the one they hate. Tyrion laughed again. The dwarf, the evil counselor, the twisted little monkey demon. I'm all that stands between them and chaos. Tyrion is internalizing his own mockery as the dwarf as ugly and then externalizing it as a sardonic outlook and conversational style. He over relies on it to win a few laughs and gain some short-term advantages in the next Tyrion chapter. And we, we laugh a lot in Tyrion chapters. I, I laughed a couple times in what I was reading this chapter, even though I knew all the lines were coming in. It's just, it's just great about Tyrion's chapters. But, you know, sometimes the, those, that has consequences, right? There, there's consequences to all that laughter. Sometimes the only consequence is getting threatened by a direwolf or two back in back at Winterfell and back when he's up with John. And sometimes the consequence is that King's Landing stays ignorant about the threat of the apocalypse, both in the fiery apotheosis of the city and the events of the Long Nights we're going to find out in Tyrion Six. I love what you're saying. Yeah, consequences to the laughing. That comes that is the perfect way of articulating how Tyrion's chapters in this book works. And I keep coming back to, to Martin Scorsese as an analog to that, because that's how a lot of his <laughs> movies work, and that's what leads to a lot of the misinterpretation. Because we keep persisting with this idea that if a movie is, is funny and has excitement, then it must be endorsing whatever it's about. That, that same sense of like the, the, the sour aftertaste to enjoyment and the sour aftertaste to power is starting to, starting to build up on him here. And that's true regardless of whether you – like I'm not saying like the street preacher is 100% correct about everything he's saying. And that's why Tyrion has to buy into this and Tyrion has to buy into the, the ugly, you know, hateful framing of himself as the twisted monkey demon. The, the point is – Regardless of whether there really is a R'hllor casting hungry glances from beyond the stars at the dragon city promised him by Eris, the pattern that the preacher is getting at about a judgment day coming for King's Landing and its accumulated sin, that pattern is real. We see it with Stannis in this book, framed by Sansa as the stranger come to judge the capital for all its horrors. And we see it again with Cersei going into a, a feast for crows in the winds of winter. And all likelihood, the climax of this motif, of course, is coming with Daenerys. And we see this, this great give and take with how George handles the rise of magic, especially as it intertwines with the political machinations in A Clash of Kings. It's, it's, Tyrion isn't wrong about the holes he pokes in these grandiose meta-narratives, whether he's at the guild hall of the alchemists or on the street with this preacher. But even when he is right about the specifics, he is missing the big picture. He is missing the, the larger moral sense of the war, and he is missing the big picture in terms of the sorcery and metaphysics at play. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He, he's missing a lot of points and a lot of the signs that are present for him and you know readers kind of are too i mean readers are kind of like oh well i mean i guess he has to use wildfire in order to save the city from status well i guess you know he has to ignore what the what the preacher is saying because you know if he doesn't do that he's not gonna be able to do his job correctly and we need him we need Tyrion to be effective at his job effective at bolstering the illegitimate master regime uh, speaking of which, we have the, the Queen's mother then showing up at the end of this chapter. How about that? That's fucking great. Yeah, speaking of the conflict between Tyrion's short-term successes and long-term failures, let's talk about Cersei. Because throughout this chapter, Tyrion finds himself in the position of 
managing Cersei, of containing Cersei, taking over wildfire production from her, prioritizing Jocelyn and Cleos over her, keeping the information from Cleos from her until it's the appropriate time for him. And part of this, of course, is Tyrion monopolizing power for himself. It's because Tyrion, unlike Ned Stark, knows how politically important it is to make sure big government projects are being done in your name, with your input and your final say. But it's also practical because Cersei does not have a, a clear view of the big picture, as this dialogue scene with Tyrion at the end of this chapter demonstrates. And that's that's not to say that Cersei is unintelligent. It's not to say that in isolation she can't grasp the machinations of plans. I would put her in the in, in the medium tier of a Song of Ice and Fire plotters. Not as good as Tywin, but better than Pycelle. And I think it's 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 not that there's no raw material to work with. It's that Tyrion and Cersei are just designed to work at cross purposes always. Right. I mean, there's like an alternate universe where the relationship between the two of them is, is a good one, where they utilize their unique skill sets to address and solve problems in King's Landing. You know, imagine Tyrion is kind of the brains and power behind the throne, orchestrating political movements within and without King's Landing, while also at the same time burnishing his reputation as the half-man to the small folk, being the populist hero who's the one who's actually looking out for the interests of the small folk. And then imagine, too, Cersei is the beautiful queen, smart, plotting marriage and diplomatic alliances. Basically, imagine her as Catelyn Stark. Regardless, Cersei and Tyrion have such a toxic relationship that they can never do anything more than antagonize the mother, than antagonize each other. Hell, as we're going to see in the next Tyrion chapter, Tyrion poisons Cersei in perhaps their tenderest moment in all the Song of Ice and Fire, and that's only to get her temporarily out of the way for his scheming. Like, this, this relationship is... It's broken before the two even have a single scene together in A Song of Ice and Fire. And their first scene is just fraught with anger and with resentment and with this toxicity that has dominated who these two are, as we talked about back in Tyrion 1. And it's only just continuing on in A Clash of Kings. And it's only going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. It really will. And, and the problem on Cersei's end, as always, is that she is so unwilling to look at other people as people that she is ignorant of and therefore unprepared for their motivations. She cannot conceive of other players doing things that she doesn't expect or which don't fit her plans, which holds her back regardless of the specifics of how good those plans are. If she was able to get outside her own head a little, she definitely has the capacity to understand why Tyrion and Tywin are making the moves they're making. But in her mind, you're either with her or against her, a problem compounded by her inability to accept equal partners, as we see with both Jamie and the Tyrells, what ultimately amounts to as, you're beneath me or you're against me. She bursts into Tyrion's chambers here not as a cleverly constructed power play to intimidate him, but as a blunt force move that would only work if Tyrion was already intimidated by her, if he was inclined to be cowed by her, which he very much is not, and she knows that. He just knows her better than Ned Stark did, and he has her over a barrel, as he points out in this chapter. Like, she may hate that Tywin sent Tyrion rather than an army, but now he's all she has. And that's why she breaks down seemingly so easily on this scene on a dime, because the panicked tears are always right there, just under the surface of the anger iceberg. You gotta imagine, like, Cersei feels like she's had this rise and fall for what seems to her like no reason. <laughs> like, she was the triumphant villain of a Game of Thrones. Her plans snapped together to sweep Robert out of the way and replace him on the Iron Throne with her perfect golden son. And now it has all come to pieces in her hands, and she is not willing to face why. Why being, in large part, that Cersei had no plan. She had no program. She had no worthwhile allies. She had no way to deal with Robert's brothers. She had nothing affirmative beyond triumph itself, power itself. And I don't, I don't really think that makes her categorically distinct from Tywin and Tyrion. I think it makes her more like just the logical end point of their approach to politics. Stripped of pretense, the way things shake out for the Lannister men, 
resemble how it shakes out for Cersei, your grand ambitions undone by your own folly. Cersei's just ahead of the curve in the worst way possible. Where she is now is where Tyrion ends up in A Dance with Dragons, and Tywin too is consumed by his own sins at the end and dies in humiliation. All Cersei has in the affirmative column, the only thing she wants to build on, is her children. And this chapter finds her starting to realize that she's doomed them. First she lost Jaime, who's still imprisoned, as she points out. She can't control Joffrey, which is the real source of her misery and powerlessness, even though she won't admit it, it's not Tyrion, it's Joffrey. And now she's learned that Marcella is being taken away from her, and that's what leads her to be even more over, to over the top than usual. And as Tyrion points out, rationally, coldly, Marcella might actually be safer in Dorne than in King's Landing right now, given how precarious their situation currently is. But that doesn't comfort Cersei, because it's only precarious because of how badly things have gone awry under Cersei. You just can really sense the walls closing in around the Lannisters in this chapter. No matter how Tyrion tries to paper over the darkness with this pep talk about how really strategically, if you look at it from a certain point of view, we're winning. And to be clear, <laughs> while Tyrion isn't entirely full of shit in terms of how he describes these dynamics, he is mostly full of shit. This strategy he describes to Cersei only works if A, Stannis doesn't sail on King's Landing, B, Rob does nothing at all, and C, Tywin's army proves big enough to defeat Renly when he reaches King's Landing. All of these are very dubious prospects. The Lannisters survive a Clash of Kings thanks to a series of unlikely domino falls. Stannis goes for Renly. Renly dies. Randall butchers Stannis' supporters at Bitterbridge so Stannis can't take control of the Reach army. Edmure halts Tywin just long enough at the Fords. Littlefinger shows up to forge the Lannister-Torell alliance. Everything has to go just so because Stannis only loses the Battle of Blackwater by, like, minutes. So everything has to be there. And Cersei might not be empathetic enough to cue into everyone's motivations, but she can still tell that her coup is backfiring on the biggest stage possible. And that just adds perfectly to the heiress-like last day's aura of instability, paranoia, and potential disaster that defines this chapter, all of which will only ramp up to the Blackwater at the climax of the book. And while Tyrion, yes, is taking more sensible steps than Cersei along the way, as you said, it is all building to that battlefield atrocity that claims Davos' sons, and even then, that doesn't win. Even then, they almost lose everything. It takes Tywin and the Tyrells coming out of nowhere to win. And underneath the politics, though, of course, you have the personal relationships playing out. As I've said, Tyrion and Cersei have one of my favorite relationships in the series, and this scene uh, exemplifies why. You, have the, you run the full emotional range. Cersei is, opens with several verbal slaps before the literal one. And you already start chuckling in this scene about how over the top her dialogue is. How Tyrion, just as soon as he gets in the room, just runs for the booze. Like a bullet just aims straight ahead. Like, I need to be drunk within seconds to make it through this conversation. But he can't control himself either, of course. He goes all in on the crude sexual insults that, you know, is not going to help him in this situation at all. He just can't resist. It's like like if you took the icily restrained antagonistic dynamic between Ned and Cersei from book one and cooked it over an open flame until everything simmers and boils over and explodes, that's what this is. Because while Cersei blows up more on Tyrion than Ned, she is also vulnerable to imploding, to breaking down. And when she cries, yeah, we see her just her carefully crafted persona collapsing all at once. And Tyrion just doesn't know what to do with this. <laughs> like this intimacy, this vulnerability, this helplessness, he's not been prepared emotionally to know what to do. And again, it's 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 that, that mob movie-like atmosphere of a character who's been trained to think of everything as a hustle, not knowing what to do with naked emotion when it presents itself. You're just baffled. Like in, a, in, in Casino, uh, the, one of my favorite movies, uh, Robert De Niro's character uh, proposes marriage to Sharon Stone's at one point, and she just tells him, bold-faced, I'm sorry, I don't feel that way about you. 
And he just starts talking about it like, oh, you know, what is what is love? It's just a deal. It's just mutual respect. It's just a gamble. And you think, oh, my God, everything is a gamble to him. That's just what this world has done to his brain. He can't relate emotionally one-on-one to another human being anymore. He can't do it. And the same thing has happened to Tyrion. All he can do is observe the forms of comfort, as he says. He can just pat her on the back stiffly because that's what you're supposed to do. And even that Cersei rejects angrily, in part because... You know, just them as her emotional walls, in part because she can tell that it's not genuine, so why should she accept it? But she also rejects it, of course, because she hates him, and he knows it, and it still hurts him. As he says to himself, why does it still hurt? I'm so tired of it hurting. It's not new, it's not fresh, but it still does. And that right there exposes the weakness in Tyrion's argument since the beginning of Book 1, that you have to wear the world's hatred of you like armor. It doesn't actually stop the pain. All it does is drive the pain deeper, hidden beneath every sarcastic aside killing the part of you that cares and hiding behind irony and nihilism, not only are those bad ideas in themselves, they don't work. They don't actually protect you. And and long before Tyrion's trial and patricide, long before Cersei breaks with Jaime and burns it all down around her, that's the doom of the lions writ small. So much of this chapter is about how Lannister dysfunction is working itself out on the larger political landscape, laying kindling across a whole continent. But as the chapter ends, George lays out the connective tissue. He shows us how these ripple effects return home to play out in the individual relationships among the Lannisters. And that's so great. How many stories can be described as neglecting characterization for world building or vice versa? And here we see a perfect marriage. We see why Westeros is the way it is, why this fucked up family is the way it is, and how the two intertwine. Yeah, it really is fantastic characterization. I think the dynamic that you were describing between Tyrion and Cersei as ultimately undoing the Lannister cause is powerful. It's the same thing that's going to happen between Tyrion and Tywin. Like Tyrion spends the entirety of his interactions with Tywin thinking that he's over that stuff. That was all like when he was a kid. He's he, he's used to Tywin treating him like shit. But then when you get to A Storm of Swords, Tyrion won, and he's pretty broken up by the fact that Tywin is not going to give him Cashley Rock. He does not consider him his son. Like that's that's powerful stuff. And I think that's also really strong writing for George in terms of how he characterizes people who have suffered abuse, parental abuse, emotional abuse, emotional neglect, and also how he characterizes the toxicity between Tyrion and Cersei. These two people are broken. They've been broken by each other. There's, you know, it's Tyrion makes note in this chapter about he hadn't seen Cersei cry since they were children. And he later notes that in another passage from, I can't remember which Tyrion chapter in Clash, how Cersei kisses him at one point. He's like, she hasn't done that since we were like eight. And she only did that because she was dared to do it by someone. Like, that, that that's horrible. I mean, I, I can't imagine not having any sense of, really any, any sense of familial bonds and relationship between siblings. I, I've got three brothers and a sister, and I just can't imagine not loving them and them loving me and, you know, as different as we are as sun the moon at some points we're still like siblings and that's it's such a contrast to how the starks are operating in the series right i mean as much as people want to be like i'm team Arya or i'm team sansa or i'm team rob or team john or whatever the whatever you want to put it ultimately they work together despite how different they all are well that's just can't and they can't work together because i think they're so fucking similar to each other ultimately Jamie maybe being a little bit of an outlier, but I think Cersei and Tyrion are very similar, at least in terms of their viewpoint of the world, and their viewpoint of the world is relatively negative, very negative, actually, and that's ultimately causes them to mistrust each other and not utilize each other's 
gifts and abilities, as I was talking about before, to make a better Lannister house, to make a better house Lannister. That's sad. It's, it's. I mean, as much as I hate the Lannisters, it's, it's sad that a brother and a sister can't love each other because of their toxicity, because of their family dynamic, because they're so similar. I mean, what's the Battle of Blackwater? Is it really a battle between the Lannister and Baratheon claims? Not really, because Tyrion hates Joffrey and feels alienated from his family, and Stannis is not even flying the Baratheon flag. That's how alienated he feels from his family. What the Battle of Blackwater is really about is these two men who have been starved of love their entire lives and can't deal with the fact that their family hates them, taking it out on literally everybody. And that's what makes it great. That's what makes it so powerful. That's what connects the personal to political so well. But before we go into foreshadowing and groundwork, one kind of final big picture note. This conversation here in which Cersei points out that on the surface... No one is doing anything in the war, while Tyrion <laughs> argues that subtler currents are about to break the surface. It felt to me on reread like this was a message from the author to the reader. And what this message says is that the first act of A Clash of Kings, in terms of like a three-act structure, is just about done, and these pieces are going to move. From here, we get Stannis laying siege to Storm's End and Renly responding. We get Rob invading the Westerlands and Tywin responding. We get the Ironborn invading the North, and, well, a bunch of people respond to that <laughs> in a bunch of different ways, but we'll get into that later. And, and yet, as I've argued before, even these seeming small moves at the start, even these opening wheels within wheels trickle down to have a devastating effect on the small folk caught in the war's grinding gears. That's why Arya and Tyrion chapters track each other so closely throughout the first half or so of A Clash of Kings before Tyrion takes off toward the Blackwater. George, I think, is deliberately playing these chapters off of each other. Mm. The most prominent characters in the book are revealing starkly different sides of the war-consuming Westeros. And I think that's... That's a terrific way of saying that, you know, what, what Tyrion thinks of as casual or just tossed off, what Cersei thinks of as no one doing anything, is in fact the end of a lot of people's worlds. You you have this this dynamic in A Song of Ice and Fire and in The War of the Five Kings specifically about the High Lords playing the Game of Thrones while the small folk are suffering. There's very much an evidence in, in terms of what Tyrion is observing here, but he's looking at it in such a high level that he's not seeing what's happening to the small folk here. And I also think... Two, like the complexity of the plot of Tyrion's plotting in King's Landing only grows from here going forward. I, when we started the Clash of Kings, it felt small, not not small in a bad way, small in terms of like Arya's on the road, Tyrion's arriving at King's Landing, Sansa's having to deal with Joffrey's shit again. You know, the, these are smaller type things, but now the plot is becoming significantly much more complex. Yes, sir. You want to take us to foreshadowing and groundwork? Absolutely. All right. So we started this a couple weeks ago. We got Riot Watch. Yeah, baby. Part 10 of Riot Watch. And here we're seeing Joffrey turning on the starving civilians from Sansa's second chapter. This time from Tyrion's perspective. It's not that Joffrey is going to defend the, the walls of the Red Keep from impossible invaders. He's going there to kill peasants who have come to demand food, um, which is, is bad. And we're also seeing it, too, that the empty stalls that I've referenced before are all empty. And that's also a bad sign. There's no food in the city. There's no food coming into the city. And we're all building to that epic moment in the Clash of Kings 2 and 9 where the city just erupts and King Bread comes out in force wearing his crown of dead Lannisters. And dead Lannister battered, more like. Yes, indeed. And we, as I said before, George wants to kind of feel that, that tension and rising unpleasantness around the, the edges of the city so the riot feels like the natural consequence of those tensions boiling over rather than just a plot convenience to, to write in an action scene. Uh, something else that we see mentioned in passing this chapter is Lancel's status as this obnoxious little social climber that Cersei is sending around to do her bidding. And that will become much more plot relevant in later Tyrion chapters when uh, Lancel becomes uh, caught up in both Tyrion and Cersei's schemes. And when we get to those chapters, we'll be talking much more about some of the great stuff you're talking about with Cleos Frey about how these these fighting houses and these fighting 
these fighting Lannisters tend to reduce a lot of people to collateral damage between them and just grind people like Lancel to dust. Right. I mean, we started seeing the Lancel Cersei interactions back when when he's riding with with Cersei out to to toward the city. Now we're seeing him delivering messages on behalf of Cersei. Next chapter, we're going to see Lancel in Cersei's room with Cersei's hair artfully tousled, as, as, as Tyrion is going to describe it. And then, of course, Varys is going to explicitly reveal to Tyrion that Lancel and Cersei are going to Bone Town together. And you know, <laughs> you, you talk about like the the small folk being kind of ground underneath the the wheels of war, and and you talk about how people are, are suffering as a result of the actions of the, of the high boys playing the Game of Thrones. Well, Lancel is kind of up there in the noble class, right? But Tyrion, Tyrion just kind of, um, he starts talking about Lancel and he's like, well, I guess, you know, this guy's going to die and that's fine, I guess. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a question in my mind whether it's going to be Cersei or Jaime who kills him first. You're like, wow, that's fucking dark, Tyrion. This is your another one of your cousins that you're essentially condemning to death because of your own, in order to gain a small political advantage over a rival, namely your sister, who you should be working with. So uh, we talk about bad family dynamics. We've got good family dynamics, too, in the form of the Starks. Not here, not the last years, anywhere in, in this story. And that Tyrion makes a mention that the Lady Catelyn wants her daughters, which is the reason why Catelyn wants the peace terms. And that's exactly what is going to be the driving motivation for Catelyn to free Jaime to an attempt to bring Sansa back to King's Landing. And um, that's that's sad, right? There's a lot of sadness underlying a lot of this chapter, isn't there? There is, but it's also just, you know, solid character architecture and the way that, you know, keeps that aspect of the peace in mind. Those those personal inside the political, as we were saying, that it's not just pieces moving around on a board. It's very specific people that want to be with very specific people again. And Catelyn is going to be driven to that point by, of course, the, the, the loss or what she thinks is the loss of Bran and Rickon. And then the, the, all the jaws of the war close shut around her in that wonderful last Catelyn chapter in The Clash of Kings. And to, to jump to far south to another family, we've got the Martells who are being brought up prominently in this chapter. Because now uh, we, we, get, we learn much more about what Tyrion was actually offering Duran Martell. We didn't know. Back in the scene with Pycelle, as we said in Tyrion 4, we didn't need to know because this is the real offer. So we were always going to learn more about it. And here we do. And, of course, the Martells are being offered a place on the council. They're being offered, uh, you know, some castles on the marches. They're being offered Marcella as a, as a ward and hostage of good faith. And, of course, as Tyrion mentioned, they're being offered justice for, for the death of Ailey Martell and her children. And that is the, the Martell's reaction to that offer in particular is only going to grow in prominence as the series goes on, potentially to the ruin of House Lannister. And it's not even because Tyrion is such a fool for making this offer. It's because... The Martells as they stand and the Lannisters as they stand are just not not equipped to come to come to peace on this. The Martells are committed in a different direction, and Tywin is not inclined to give them Gregor, as we find out in Storm of Swords. So it's not that Tyrion is completely misguided, it's that he doesn't read either institution properly, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do know what you mean. It, like in that kind of the institution question about what Tyrion is considering, the other fascinating part about Tyrion is that he's only looking at Doran Martell. And maybe that's just the, the fact that George hasn't developed a lot of these side characters for Doran. Oberyn's probably not in mind. Yeah, that's true. Oh, I mean, Oberyn is, is, is in, I believe he's in the appendix, but probably hasn't been. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, you're right, right, right. But his full character is probably not uh, not in mind yet. Right. And the Sand Snakes are not there, and Arianne probably sure. isn't there, and Quentin probably isn't there in his mind. But that that is a, a blind spot for the Lannisters specifically, is that they're only considering the major players of the War of the Five Kings or the potential players in the War of the Five Kings, and not looking at the side characters, those who are also going to have a stake in seeing some sort of action being brought forward. Like, Doran Martell is not, does not want to harm Marcellus, we're going to find out in the Feast for Crows, the Dance of Dragons, and the Winds of Winter. At the same time, not all of his family is going to feel the same way about Marcella, and that's, um, again, sad. Very, very sad. Lots of sadness again. 
Yeah, and uh, yep, exactly. Uh, under the under the phone fun tone of this chapter, as we were saying about the alchemists, there's a lot of signs pointing towards tragedy. Speaking of which, we've you know we've covered so many bases in this chapter, but we we barely touched on wildfire itself. So let's go into that for our discussion portion of the episode. As with Tyrion's chain, which also gets a brief shout out in this chapter, George prevents Tyrion from thinking directly about what he's planning to do with all this wildfire. But since wildfire is a more attention-grabbing and obviously game-changing element than the chain, George knows he needs to placate us with a stated purpose for it, namely flinging it off the walls, so we don't see the wildfire stuff the ships coming any more than Stannis' fleet does. George knows that we're, we're going to be immediately uh, champing at the bit to know what the wildfire is for, so he gives us this fig leaf of we're going to be just flinging it from the walls, and that's what Emery Florin thinks they're going to be doing, and we don't see this larger, more devious trick of the fleet. But before we get to the wildfire at the Blackwater, I think we should dig into some kind of real-world and in-universe history of the substance, and that's that's more your wheelhouse, sir, sir. Take it away. Ah, thank you. Let me... Sorry, I burnish my my reputation here. Okay, so let's talk about the historical rep- the historical inspiration for Wildfire. In a t- t- 2012 interview, Martin was asked about the Battle of the Blackwater and gave some information as to what he was inspired by, specifically what he was inspired from to make Wildfire in the story. So Wildfire, he says, of course, is my magical version of Greek fire, to go back to the Constantinople reference. And once again, fantasy is bigger, so Wildfire is Greek fire times ten. It's Greek fire, but it's worse than Greek fire, and it's got a little magical element to it. It's really nasty stuff, and it burns with green flames, which is a nice pyrotechnical pyrotechnical effect. So Wildfire is seemingly uh, inspired by Greek fire. I've got some quibbles with George about how he's saying that Wildfire has this amazing magic super weapon that the Byzantines use. It wasn't actually. I mean, it was is kind of more minor than the, the boom chain was much more effective in saving Constantinople from the Arabs and their various sieges of Constantinople in the eighth century. And uh, I digress. Um, regardless, there's like we talked about in the, in the cast and stuff. Like I was talking about, there's a strong possibility that George was also inspired by the U.S. military's use of napalm during the Vietnam War, both in the physical properties as well as the themes communicated by the use of the substance. And so that's kind of like the, the real world historical side of it. Uh, the history of Wildfire in the Song of Ice and Fire itself in Westeros, it's quite complex, but to save some time instead of going like by each individual thing and go into significant depth, let's only bullet point a few things. Tyrion thinks that the Pyromancer's Guild is an ancient one, but it's unclear in both the Throne show as well as the books how old the Guild actually is. It's only that the Maesters eventually supplanted the Pyromancers, quote, in recent centuries. The first canonical mention in the books of Wildfire comes when Aegon IV created, quote, dragons, a.k.a. primitive cannons that could shoot jets of wildfire. He, Aegon IV intended to use them in his attempted conquest of Dorne, but because Aegon IV is a fucking moron, uh, he tried to put them up against the boneway, but he couldn't get them all the way up the mountain itself. So he retreats them back, and then they have all burning and killing hundreds of people in the Kingswood itself. So, wow, that's great. Good job, Aegon IV. Later, we got Bloodraven. We got a reference from, I believe, the sworn sword of Bloodraven using wildfire to burn the dead from the Great Spring Sickness. And then in 259 AC, we got the famous reference of wildfire being used when King Aegon V Targaryen, that is Aeg, using wildfire at Summerhall, resulting in the tragedy of Summerhall. Lots of sadness again in this chapter. And that takes us to Aerys II Targaryen, who gets a number of interesting references in this chapter, or more accurately, foreshadowings of future revelations of past, present, and future of wildfire in the Song of Ice and Fire. Absolutely. Wildfire reaches its its height of fashion, so to speak, in King's Landing under Aerys II. As Helene says to, to Tyrion here, It was good of you to visit us. A great honor, hmm. It has been too long since the king's hand graced us with his presence. Not since Lord Russert, and he was of our order. That was back in King Aerys' day. King Aerys took a great interest in our work. And then Tyrion thinks to himself, 
King Eris used used to roast the flesh off of his enemies. His brother Jamie had told him a few stories of the Mad King and his pet pyromancers. And of course, that itself is his great groundwork because Jamie will follow up on these stories at length, starting in Catelyn's final chapter in this book when he talks about the specific nature of Brandon and Rickard Stark's deaths, and then continuing at, at length about the, the overall King's Landing nuke plot with Brienne in the Harrenhal bathhouse in the Storm of Swords. He will also follow up on the mention of the murdered pyromancer masters during the sack of King's Landing. And of course, that was necessary to prevent the ignition of the wildfire. It ironically also ensured that the pots would never be removed because, as Aline says here, that the, the brain trust, so to speak, of the alchemists is in is in sore state ever since, and they really can't manage the existing wildfire King Eris's ripe fruits like they used to. Right before the Battle of the Blackwater, our annoying as shit Pyromancer Helene shows back up with some interesting news about wildfire production at King's Landing. This cannot be true, said Tyrion as he poured over the ledgers. Almost 13,000 jars? Do you take me for a fool? I'm not about to pay the king's gold for empty jars and pots of sewage sealed with wax. I warn you. No, 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 Helene Squeak, the sums are accurate. I swear, we have been most fortunate, my lord hand. Another cache, cache, another cache of Lord Rosses was found more than 300 jars under the dragon pit. My brothers and I have been laboring day and night from the first, I assure you. It is only we have made so much of the substance that we have become more practiced, as it were, and also certain spells ancient secrets of our order. Very delicate, very troublesome, but necessary if the substance is to be all it should be. Tyrion was growing impatient. Sir Jason Pywater was likely here by now, and Iron Hand misliked waiting. Yes, yes, you have secret spells. How splendid. What of them? They, um, seem to be working better than they were, Helene smiled weakly. You don't suppose there are any dragons about, do you? <laughs> Not unless you found one in the dragon pit, Tyrion said. Why? I was just remembering something old Wisdom Potter once told me when I was an acolyte. I asked him why so many of our spells seemed, well, not as effectual as our scrolls would have us believe. And he said it was because magic had begun to go out of the world the, late, the day the last dragons died. Hmm. <laughs> so that ominously takes us to a nicely into the future of Wildfire and Kingsland. We're all we're going to cover Wildfire at significant length at the Battle of Blackwater itself. We'll talk about that much more. That was his third chapter. So... In a now-deleted post by a writer who also, <laughs> also I found this out, deleted his account, and I swear, if this thing actually existed, I'll read the show notes of your Patreon, I'll link to the post itself. George is asked by the writer, there's a lot of wildfire caches still, caches, there's a lot of wildfire caches still hidden around King's Landing, isn't there? George's response, yes. So now, with all the wildfires sitting underneath the city of King's Landing, the power of wildfire production growing, with dragons returning to the world... And the Dragon Queen finally realizing that her wars in Westeros... Emmett, I, I just have to ask. What's the endgame for King's Landing and how will it be destroyed by Dragonfire and Wildfire in the end of the books? So, of course, we have Cersei in Season 6 detonating the Sept. And there is some, you know, connective tissue to that in the books with Cersei's growing obsession with Wildfire and her dislike of the Tyrells and Sparrows, etc. But as we've talked about before in various forms with a couple different people, there is also kind of the young Griff angle to consider in the books and how that faction is going to play out. So it doesn't seem fully likely that Cersei will be able to take over in her own right and have just an, an unblemished playing field to take on Daenerys within. So... Yeah, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about how Cersei's death is going to go down, but it, it, it seems like it could potentially line up with uh, Cersei attempting to stockpile wildfire that would pay off her wildfire session and her plot, and then Jaime stopping her, preventing another another heiress like uh, catastrophe, and then having the, the you know the great horrible payoff to be that Jaime thinks he saved the city, but then Eris's daughter comes home <laughs> to activate his final legacy, and you know again there's a lot of different factors in there it could play out in a number of different ways. This is something that people have theorized a bunch about before and after season eight. 
but there is something that that links so well between the the wildfire and the dragons the the, the presence of the dragons increasing their power Eris's dream of rising as a reborn dragon Arian bright flame having similar ideas and as as we've talked about before there's there's something that would work so beautifully with Tyrion's character there that he has that, that you know that moment in the show when he says that you know you're not going to be making wildfire for my sister anymore you're going to be making it for me and that moment should seal his doom. That should be the moment he commits himself at a level he doesn't even realize yet to the destruction of King's Landing and why I think he needs to be part of that. And I, you know, they shied away from that in the show for a number of reasons, but I think that that's one of the main power of coming back to a chapter like this is realizing that Tyrion is is, is making a deal with a devil he doesn't yet fully understand that the, the, the seed is strong for his eventual complicity in the destruction of King's Landing, urging Daenerys on to this, this kind of chain reaction. So while I, you know, like everyone else, you know, the wildfire explosion of the Sept in season six is this insane cinematic thing that's that's fun to rewatch. But I think you can see the groundwork being laid all throughout how George describes wildfire for a different kind of situation that I think will be just as cinematic and also unite more characters and, and feel like, I think, a more tightly conceived event on the whole. And I think alleviate some of the issues people have with season eight. I, I agree. And I think there's an aspect to where... The show tried to have it a little bit both ways in, in terms of how they did the destruction of King's Landing. They had Danny being the single culprit of the destruction of King's Landing. But they also had Wildfire exploding, too. They had a brief mention of Wildfire pots being stored by Cersei in Season 8. And then they had you know, the green explosions by the Red Keep towards the towards the end of the explosion itself. At the same time, like as you know, a lot of people have said and I've written about it extensively, I think there's there's an aspect of... The destruction of King's Landing and how it goes down that I'm remain uncomfortable with, and that's not that I don't think that Danny will will play a part of it, but I think that Wildfire will play a much stronger part in how the city is destroyed, and how Tyrion himself will play a much stronger part in how and why King's Landing is destroyed. They took Tyrion's role in it out of the story itself to its detriment, and I think Tyrion's extensive knowledge of Wildfire. His knowledge that wildfire is seemingly being stored in random places underneath the city is going to come back to play a major role. As I was saying earlier, there's such strong parallels between Tyrion and Stannis in a lot of ways in The Clash of Kings. And with Stannis, the basic structure of uh, the deal with the devil that ultimately consumes you remained intact in the show, if kind of foreshortened. And with Tyrion, it's like the opposite problem is, is that deal with the devil kind of vanished, even though you see it there in the first couple of seasons, especially in his deal with the alchemist in season two and then his trial at season four. And that's the threefold revelation for George in terms of Tyrion's structure in the books. So I think it about wraps us up for this episode on Clash of Kings Tyrion 5. As always, if you guys have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter at portquentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, WordPress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, Justiciar of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, 
Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson. Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Tim, the Knight who was guided by voices. Sir Courtenay, What Did the Five Finger Say to the Face Penrose? Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way, of course. Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore. And our newest High Lords, Lord Mar Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, and Sir Michael Mertens. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome to our newest members. So, join us next week as we return to Winterfell for a Clash of Kings Brand 3 in which the Northmen dig into the Harvest Feast promised to us in Brand's second chapter. We'll be joined by our favorite Stark loyalist dinner guest, Chloe, a.k.a. Lies and Arbor from Girls Gone Canon, is joining us. Everyone give a hip-hip hooray for Chloe coming back and joining us on the Nauticast. She's been away for a long time, hasn't We've had Chloe on for Sansa and for Ned, so going around the, the Stark roulette wheel, we landed next on Bran, and of course this is a wonderful chapter in its own right, but also the chapter in which we introduced Jojen and Mira Reed, characters that Chloe has written and thought a great deal about, so we're super looking forward to having her on for that chapter.